Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering podcast, featuring New York sports talk from a long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. Got a good show for you today. We're going to dive into the world of baseball today. Big weekend for the vocals. The Yankees take two out of three from the Boston Red Sox, push the Red Sox further away from defending the AL East title. The Mets, not so much, lose two out of three in Arizona, complete a disastrous two and five road trip. I'll be joined by Anthony McCarron from SNY, who contributes to Baseball Night in New York, used to cover both teams for the New York Daily News. Anthony and I will talk baseball and the two locals in just a little bit. Be sure you're locked into the end of the show for this week's two-minute drill, where I'm discussing the theories of floating around from the NBA that they might create some tournaments, possibly a midseason tournament to replace the All-Star game, or a play-in tournament to get the tournament the last couple spots in the NBA playoffs. I'll break that down, how that might work. Also, my thoughts on the finals in there as well, the first two games. We're recording on Monday morning after the Warriors won last night to even the series at a game apiece for heading back to Oracle Arena on Wednesday for game number three. But we'll get it all started this week's opening tip, where I'm going to catch you up on what's been happening over at Roland Garros in the first week of the French Open right after this. All right, welcome back to this week's opening tip. That call you just heard courtesy of NBC Sports' Ted Robinson from the epic fourth-round match between Stan Wawrinka and Stefanos Tsitsipas at the French Open. That match happened yesterday morning, almost six hours in a five-set thriller for Stan Wawrinka. And this is why I love tennis, because sometimes... You have these two guys who are just so evenly matched. They just go back and forth, or two ladies. They just go back and forth, have a war for several hours, and it's just a battle of wills. And that makes this sport so much fun. And I highly recommend, if you get a chance to check it out, find one of these, especially this week. The matches are going to start getting more intense. The bigger matchups are coming because we're into the second week of a Grand Slam. That's always a lot of fun. Let's start with the women's side, though. We'll get back to the men's side with that, especially the fallout after that Wawrinka ZC Potts match in just a moment. But we'll start on the women's side where the headline is most of the big names are gone. Seven of the top 10 seeds go out in the first couple of rounds. Headlined by Serena Williams, losing in the third round, 6 2, 7 5 to 20 year old American Sophia Kennan. This is the earliest Serena Williams has left. A Grand Slam since 2014 when she went on the third round at Wimbledon against Elise Cornette. This is the latest disappointment for Serena, who has had injury problems throughout the year. Remember, she barely played any of the warm-up tournaments leading into the Roland Garros. She's been sick a lot this year. And to be honest, she played well while she was there, but that last match just showed until we see she's healthy. And it's going to be hard to determine because it's a little bit of a turnaround before, quick turnaround before we hit the grass court season. We hit Wimbledon at the end of the month. But until we see she's healthy, I think it's hard to count Serena Williams in a Grand Slam right now because 
it takes a certain level of physical fitness to play at these elite events to win the seven matches necessary to claim a Grand Slam title. And right now, it's just she doesn't have it. Whether it's age, whether it's the fact that the field is starting to catch up to her, I don't know. But she hasn't won a Grand Slam since 2017, beginning of 2017, actually, when she won in Australia. And she's been to a couple of finals since, lost at the end there. We've been starting to see earlier exits from her. She had that melt out the quarters in Australia. Here goes out in the third round. We'll see how she is at Wimbledon. And hopefully, for her sake, she's able to get some healthy warm-ups in and get her knee and stuff in shape because Serena, when healthy, is a lot of fun to have on the women's tour. And right now, you can see the event is struggling to find its marquee power without her there. The other big name to go out, Naomi Osaka, also losing the third round. Falls to 42nd rank, Katarina Siniakova. Osaka's streak of 16 straight Grand Slam matches won is snapped. Remember, she had won the U.S. Open. She had won the Australian Open. Won her first two matches here, loses in the third round. Not a surprise because she was not having a great clay court season. Perhaps still the residual effects of splitting with her coach after Australia. And right now, tough break for her, but she's still on the rise. She's a year for Wimbledon, and it leads to see how her style plays on the grass courts. Hopefully we'll talk to Veronica Bruno again before Wimbledon to get a scouting report on how that tournament's going to shape up for her, but we'll see about that. Seven of the top ten women are out ahead of the fourth round. The highest remaining seed is our defending champion, Simona Halep, and her path at the top of the draw, it looked brutal two days ago because that was where Osaka was, that's where Serena Williams was. Now it's pretty much cleared out. Her biggest obstacle right now is potentially a semifinal matchup with American Madison Keys, the 14 seed. Keys won today in the fourth round. She beat Siniakova, who beat Osaka. She beat her 6-2, 6-4 to advance to the quarterfinals. She would play Halep in the semifinals. Halep is taking the court today at noon. I'm recording this in the morning on Monday. So right now that appears to be the clear matchup that we're going to get on this side is a Simona Halep, Madison Keys semifinal. The bottom of the draw is even emptier because the only really big seed left down there is the American Sloan Stevens, the seventh seed who got to the fourth round yesterday by beating Garbine Muguruza. She has a couple of interesting matches ahead. The Brit Joanna Conta is down there. The eighth seed Ashley Barty is down there. And it's a lot of room there for Sloan Stevens to maneuver. So don't forget, last year Stevens did well here. She got to the final where she lost to Halep. We could be in line for a rematch here. And a rematch would be a lot of fun. Because it's a great contrast in styles. Halep's a pure clay quarter. Stevens' game translates very well everywhere. So I'll be excited to see that happen again. Now we'll go over the men's side. The chalk is held most of the way. Rafael Nadal cruising into the quarterfinals. Continuing to do what he does. He dominates on clay. Nothing is going to change here. He will take on Kei Nishikori in the quarterfinals. Nishikori needed five sets to advance the other day. And expect Rafa to continue there. And he will be set to face, potentially, Roger Federer in the semifinals if they get that far. And Federer, in his return to clay, he has not missed a beat. Simply put, the man has not missed anything, showed no rust on clay. He has not played the French Open since 2015. That's four years. Has he come back? Hasn't dropped a set on his way to the quarterfinals. 
which is absolutely absurd if you think about that. We'll put in perspective what Federer has done. Let's say, for instance, that Derek Jeter in his prime said, you know what? I'm going to walk away from baseball for four years. I'm going to leave after the 2003 season. I'll come back in 2007, play for the Yankees again, hit 320, be an all-star, and look like I've never missed a beat. That's basically what Federer is doing on clay, which is pretty remarkable. If you think about that. He is in the quarterfinals tomorrow. He will take on his countryman, Stan Wawrinka, who, as I mentioned before, won the epic match against Stefanos Zizipas. These two guys were just battling throughout the match. They would not give an inch, when, and momentum constantly swung. When just you think that one guy won, bam, the other guy took momentum. It went back and forth, back and forth, until Wawrinka finally, in the fifth set, got ahead and won the, the match. He gets a matchup with his countryman, Roger Federer, in the quarters. Both of these men have won French Opens before. Wawrinka famously beat Novak Djokovic in one of the instances where Djokovic actually beat Rafael Nadal in the semifinals, only to lose to Wawrinka in the final. Federer won in 2009 when Nadal was injured to not play Roland Garros. Those two are playing for a shot at the Nadal Nishikori winner, so you could have an epic showdown on Friday with, with the winner of those two matches. Top half of the draw, Novak Djokovic is there. He looks pretty good. He advanced to the quarterfinals this morning, and he's going to get the much easier draw. And by easier, I mean, yes, he's still dealing with a lot of top players. There's still a lot of top 10 guys in that half of the draw, but he's not to deal with Nadal or Federer until the final. He doesn't have to deal with Wawrinka until the final, who is a much bigger threat than his 24th seed indicates. Right now, he is in line to get the winner of Sasha Zverev and Fabio Fonini in the quarterfinals. Sasha Zverev, obviously, the one of the top seeds left in the draw. And Zverev, all the talent in the world, hasn't broken through a major semifinal yet. This would probably be his best surface to do it on. We will see if his game is ready to step up, get past Fonini, and take on Djokovic there. The bottom half of that draw on the top side is very interesting. One matchup, you have Gael Monfils, the Frenchman, sticking on Dominic Thiem, who, as Veronica Bruno pointed out in our French Open preview a couple weeks ago, is the best clay court player in the world, not named Nadal or Djokovic. Obviously, Monfils will have the home crowd advantage, all the French fans behind him, rooting him on. And Thiem, obviously, the most talented clay court player that has not won a slam at Roland Garros yet. That's going to be a great match. The other one, two top 10 seats. The 10 seed, Karen Kachanov against Juan Martin Del Potro, who has a grand slam under his belt, won the U.S. Open in 2009, dangerous wherever he plays, guts out everything, and very dangerous player. Those are all the obstacles Novak will have to deal with. He'll have to deal with two of those, pe- those guys on his way to a potential final. And... That will help him out immensely because he will not have to go through a war with Rafael Nadal or Roger Federer just to get to a final. He should be fresher. That will help him for a potential final run. As of right now, I think we are going to get the Djokovic-Nadal final. I think that's the case on the men's side. I think we're also getting this, the uh, Halep-Sloan-Stevens final. I will take Rafa on clay. I hope I'm wrong as a big Djokovic fan, but I expect... Uh, Nadal to defend his home surface, win that, deny Novak Djokovic his second Novak slam. On the women's side, I'm going to go with, with uh, Sloane Stevens here. I think Sloane Stevens is playing very well. 
I think she has a chip on her shoulder. She came very close last year here, did not win, and is going to try and finish the job here. And I think her path is clear enough. She'll either get there, take care of business, win at the French, and add another Grand Slam to her resume after that U.S. Open title a couple of years ago. It'll be a lot of fun. I'll break it all down next week, how this tournament ended up at the end of the show next week. We'll get into all that. Up next, we're going to talk some baseball with Anthony McCarron from SNY. Catch up on the Mets, catch up on the Yankees after the big weekend for the Yankees, winning two out of three against the Red Sox right after this. 2-2. Swung on. A long drive to right center field. That ball is high. It is far. It is gone. The Sanchino. He drills a two-run home run. Oh, that Gary is scary. And the Yankees take a 5-3 lead. All right, we are back on the Just End the Suffering podcast. That call you just heard uh, from WFAN's John Sterling of Gary Sanchez's go-ahead homer in the Yankees' win over the Boston Red Sox on Saturday. Yankees win two out of three over the weekend. The Mets lose two out of three over the weekend. We're going to talk some New York baseball today with a guy who has covered New York baseball for a long time. First with the New York Daily News. Now with SNY contributing to their various blogs and appearing on Baseball Night in New York on many occasions, the great Anthony McCarran is with me today. Anthony, welcome. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing very well. Let's start with the Yankees first. I make the Yankee fans very happy because obviously they win two out of three against the Red Sox. They go ahead and are basically push them as far away from them as possible in the division. So what's your big takeaway from this series? Well, you know, I think that we got a, a good glimpse at the Yankees. You know, they hadn't lost to the Red Sox in, this year until Sunday night, and, and I know they lost on Sunday, but, and that is what it is. But I think we saw a little more proof that this Yankee team might be better than the Red Sox. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't count the Red Sox out, even though the deficit is pretty large right now. Um, but, I, you know, they're still very talented. Uh, but I just think that this Yankee team, I don't know, they seem to have something special going on with the way that they have overcome all these injuries and have had all these guys step up and, and, and play really well when granted the opportunity. Um, you know, but I, I didn't think it was all roses from the Red Sox series because I think we saw, again, that Clint Frazier is having a lot of trouble defensively in the outfield, and that was a big deal on Sunday and is probably going to be a big deal going forward for this team and until they start to get uh, Aaron Judge back, John Carlos Stanton, that sort of thing, because you know Clint is contributing very well with the bat, but his glove is, has, been, uh, has been very poor so far this season. It's got to improve. Uh, I know he's working diligently uh, in the outfield uh, pregame and, and, and with, with the instructors and that sort of thing, but so far he has made a lot of uh, bad plays out there, and uh, it may start to cost him at bats. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Clint Frazier because that's something I wanted to ask you because obviously the Yankees need him right now because they don't have Stanton or Judge. But like, once those guys start coming back, do you think his glove be enough to cause them to to send him to the minor leagues to make clear a roster spot where they force him to go to DH? Like, what do you think they're going to do with him once everybody's healthy? I mean, it's it's a great question because he really has been part of the reason that they're where they are right now because he has contributed so much offensively. I mean, he's got an 8.36 OPS and he's hit 10 homers. And he really has been, we've seen the glimpses of the legendary bat speed, you know, the famous Brian Cashman quote about him when they made the trade. You know, I don't know what they're going to do with him. I mean, they have serious roster crunch uh, stuff coming when all these guys come back, and that's assuming that they remain healthy as well. 
you know, Stanton needs to DH some. They like to get Gary Sanchez some DH days. I mean, do you really have a 24-year-old guy as your as your sort of permanent DH? I, I'm not sure about that, but he's clearly not a guy who needs to go to the minor leagues either. He has at least proven that he can handle major league pitching and be a, a value bat for them. So, you know, if he caught the ball a little bit more, I'd say he'd be a prime trade chip for a uh, for a pitcher if they go that route at some point. But, I mean, this is going to be something that they're going to have to figure out. And now, look, in baseball, these things usually sort themselves out in some way. Somebody will get injured. Somebody, you know, somebody will need some rest. I mean, you know, Brett Gardner, I know a lot of Yankee fans love Brett Gardner, and he's played well so far this year. But, you know, he tends to wear down after, a, you know, in a full season. You know, giving Clint Frazier some of his at-bats might not be a bad idea. Uh, you know, sort of platooning and left if you can there with, with those two guys. So that may work, too. But the Yankees have some decisions facing them, no doubt. Yeah, for sure. But right now, the guy making those decisions, Aaron Boone, I mean, he's done a great job because with all the injuries they would have gone through, almost any other team, I feel like, would have just folded and just said, you know what, our year's over. We had too many guys get hurt. I feel like now, I feel like he's, in my opinion, the front runner for the manager of the year in the American League. It's what he's done basically – putting together a team with like rubber bands and duct tape and it's just incredible yes i mean certainly the players deserve some credit too because they've seized opportunities i mean geo or comes to mind pretty quickly he's never hit like this before in his career and you know he's playing every day now and and uh has produced some offensive numbers he was always a good glove man but this is this is something different and and the yankees have certainly benefited from them but i think boone uh to your point he really exudes this kind of serenity to them and he's always without being what's what's the word i'm looking for without being disingenuous he gets the positivity out there if you know what i mean like it doesn't sound like he has blinders on and can't see the negativity he's gentle with the way he sort of discusses it if that makes any sense um I, i feel like sometimes with mickey calloway and the mets he has maintained positivity in the face of incredible negative stuff, and it looks ridiculous. And I feel like Boone has found a way to sort of finesse that, that is not even, that makes it seem like, yeah, yeah, you know, that was bad by Clint Frazier in the outfield, but, you know, he's working hard. And, but Boone is very good at that, and I think that that is something that filters into the clubhouse, and I think the players appreciate that because, you know, it, this is not the fire and brimstone era of the major league manager anymore. Uh, you know, the Earl Weavers and the Billy Martins, that, that day is done for now. And these guys are communicators, and they are the guys who put into place the organization's philosophy on, on this, that, and the other, and maintain the clubhouse and maintain the players, you know, buoy their point of view and, and their spirits. And I think Boone does an incredible job at that. He is he's a nice man. He's very smooth and he's really good at it. And I think that that has impacted this team. Um, I mean, he's got some real competition for AL manager of the year though, uh, with, with, uh, Rocco Baldelli of the twins, because they've had an amazing year too, that I'm not sure anybody expected. And so he probably will get some, uh, uh, get some love there too. But Boone is definitely a, a big contender. And, you know, I mean, there's a challenge coming up for him, though, when all these guys come back. Uh, you know, like we were discussing with Clint Frazier, what does he do? What does the organization do? And how does Boone sell that to the players? Yeah, it's going to be a big challenge for him. Who do you think so far has been the most important player for the Yankees this year? 
Well, I think it's Gary Sanchez, uh, but there's a few good candidates, including Gleyber Torres um, and DJ LeMayhew. Um, but I think it's Sanchez because of the thunderbolt that his power is for that team, especially because he had such a poor year, injury-filled as well last year, uh, you know, when everybody was wondering whether Gary Sanchez uh, was ever going to be what we thought Gary Sanchez was going to be. Well, he is going to be that, and I think he's proving it this year. And they really needed that sort of thing from him. And look, I mean, his catching is, is, uh, is not a big topic right now. Um, I mean, he's had some blips, uh, and, and I think he probably always will. But this is not a thing that we're grinding on after every game and talking about uh, after uh, miscue after miscue. So I think that he has really added a lot to the Yankees. Uh, you know, Glaber is an emerging star. I think he's the next uh, Anthony Rendon, uh, if that's a proper comparison. Um, this guy is a dynamite player and has obviously taken on a little bit of a mantle in that lineup in terms of production and, and getting stuff done when they've been missing all these guys. Uh, LeMahieu, I, I mean, I just love watching him play for his, I mean, his sort of gritty toughness. I know that phrase is maybe a little overused, but I think he personifies hard-nosed baseball and uh, you know, I don't think I realized how good he was uh, when he was playing in Colorado uh, until I've gotten a chance to see him play more regularly this year. Yeah, they've definitely been very valuable on the offensive side. The pitching, I know Domingo Herman's in great, but he has innings issues, I'm sure. So the Yankees are surely looking for starting pitching at some point. I think they're more likely to sign a guy like Dallas Keuchel now that the draft pick conversation has gone away. I think they're going to try and trade for a guy like Madison Bumgarner by the deadline. Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, the trading season is going to start, uh, start heating up after the draft. Uh, when all all those executives who have been concentrating on the draft can turn their attention to whether their team is you know sellers or not, so we'll see. I mean, now that the now that the uh, draft pick compensation is off, Keuchel, you know, he may be attractive to them. They do need to add a starter. I think that that's the area that they that they've got to improve if they're going to go uh, all the way this year. Um, you know, because they do have they do have. I mean, CC is probably going at some point going to need another stint on the DL. Uh, he always seems to. I know he's been there already this year. Probably he'll have to go again, and that's fine. Um, you know, Jay Happ has been uh, victimized by the home run a lot. He's given up 15 home runs already. Uh, you know, and, and as you say, Herman's probably going to have some, going to bump up against some innings limits. So they do need another arm to start games there, uh, even with that bullpen. I, I don't know if they can use the opener every fifth day. <laughs> Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I, I think Keuchel is, light, is, is a possibility, um, you know, and I think they also have plenty of assets in their minor league system to get something done and financial wherewithal as well to take on salary that they could get something done on the trade market, too. Um, you know, I, I'd love that, I love that Yankee fans, some Yankee fans, I feel like, think that Madison Bumgarner is going to be this cure-all and that he's going to win, you know, a game seven of every series and be this incredible uh, asset and and he very may very well may be um, I don't know if he's that guy anymore and you know it'd be interesting to see if he could be yeah, I know he's pitching better this year but um, uh, you know there's no guarantees when you get a uh, when you make a, a big trade for a big starter you know Sonny Gray didn't work out in New York either uh, I'm not saying he's he was as good as Bumgarner but uh, but yeah, I, I think they need to make a they need to make a pitching move. Um, you know, I'm not sure that it's the 100% guarantee answer that some of the fans want it to be. 
Yeah, he brought Bats and Bumgarner. He and the Giants are coming to New York, take on the Mets this week. The Mets are back in trouble again, go 2-5 and five on the road trip. Big problem, the pitching has been a massive disappointment this season. How surprised are the Mets at the fact that their pitching has let them down pretty much the entire year? Well, I think they're stunned. I think they thought that um, uh, Syndergaard, you know, DeGrom was what he was last year. That was kind of a historic, an historic season. I don't know if anybody expected him to have a 1.7 ERA again. Um, and, uh, but I think they thought he was going to be really good, and I think he's been really good sometimes and not really good some other times. And, but Syndergaard, to me, is the big mystery because – I, I felt like he's going to emerge into this dominant force, and he just hasn't. I mean, his ERA is nearly five, and he just he has this nuclear stuff that seems to get hit. I mean, I, I can't imagine that guys get – he's got more hits than innings pitched. I can't believe guys are getting hits off of a 100-mile-an-hour fastball and, you know, slider that's 90-plus, uh, you know. But it's just mind-boggling how this guy is not better than he is. And I wonder if it's a confidence issue sometimes. Like once he gets hit, he gets hit more because he's losing confidence. But he's never taken that sort of leap. You know, since I think everybody thought when he and Bumgarner dueled in that wild card game, everyone thought that he was going to explode as this number one. And it hasn't happened. Um, You know, they're built on their pitching, their starters. You know, Zach Wheeler was supposed to be another guy this year after his second half that was going to give them a three-ace type thing going, which would make them very difficult uh, over the stretch of a long season if everyone stayed healthy, and it hasn't happened. And they don't have the bullpen to make up for that, and that's why they are where they are right now. Yeah, another factor in this is uh, Mickey Calloway, who he's had some strange bullpen usage, questionable lineup management all year, and a lot of people are arguing he's helping, hurting the team while he's helping them. Do you think if they continue slipping away, considering that the NL is still pretty winnable, do you think he could still get fired if things start to go off the rails again? Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And, and part of the reason why is because he's Brody Van Wagenen's cover. Uh, I mean, he is the buffer for the new GM, whose moves haven't exactly worked great. I mean, you know, and let's, but let's be clear, the Mets aren't dead and buried either. They're, you know, they're three games under five hundred, um, and, uh, you know, the season's not over for them by any stretch. But, you know, the Mets don't look very good. And, you know, they've got, so they've got a lot of issues, and I think that Mickey is the – I mean, the manager's always the clear uh, scapegoat because you can't fire the players. So, you know, I think he is managing for his job. And I don't know if I don't know if it's imminent or, or something like that, but certainly if they don't do better, then that chatter, which we've already we've already experienced one sort of you know rising volume uh, on that on the talk about Mickey and his job, you know. But if they don't get any better, then we're going to have more of that, and then ultimately they're going to have to they're probably going to have to do something, you know. But the room is there for them to play better and, and do something about it, and you know, we'll see if they're capable of it. Yeah, for sure. And you mentioned Brody Van Wagenen, who for all the praise the Mets fans gave him when he came in here about how he wanted to go all in right now and how he came out and said, come get us after they signed Jed Lowry, that he really has gotten away scot-free with the fact that most of his big moves didn't work. So how come do you think that is, that he hasn't really taken much of the heat yet? Well, I think part of it is because that he does have the scapegoat uh, because of Mickey. Mickey gives him cover. For sure, he uh, you know Mickey is was not hired by the GM, so you know he he's he can use that as a shield right now. 
Uh, I think some of the other thing is, at least from fans, I'm sure they're unhappy with the performance of the players. Uh, and that, inclu- that includes Brody's acquisitions, and it includes guys who are here already, uh, you know, including some of the bullpen guys um, and, and including some of, the, you know, some of the players who were here already. Uh, Todd Frazier, uh, you know, lately he's come on a little bit, but he, he hasn't been an, a, a big answer, even though he's by far their best defensive third baseman uh, and maybe should be playing there more, more uh, regularly when you, when you look at how J.D. Davis plays third. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see. Once, if Mickey does get fired, then it's all on Brody, which is why, you know, on one hand he's cover, but on the other hand, like the idea that maybe he, he, he is, the, is the guy first in line would be something that Brody doesn't want to get rid of uh, right away. So maybe they would have to, you know, sort of crater even more for them to make a drastic move because then it's all on the GM. Would you consider a drastic move for, for for a player? Like, say they went out and they decided to spend the money inside Craig Campbell. Would that be enough to help that bullpen, or do you think it's just cover for a me- like not much to help a mediocre roster? I'd love to see them sign Craig Kimbrell. Uh, I think that would be a great move. Uh, that would change the bullpen pecking order. Um, you know, I'll let the I'll let the front office figure out who closes between Edwin Diaz and Kimbrell. Um, you know, and, and I say whatever to that anyway because you know I'd rather have one of those guys pitching in the seventh inning if the bases were loaded than having uh, Jerry's Familia come in and pitch. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that they it would be great if they did something like that, and that's a, that's a all-in move. Uh, you know, depending on what kind of deal Kimbrell is looking for at this late date. Um, you know, but that that would sort of dovetail with Brody's uh, theory about winning now, and I, you know. By the way, I don't think he was wrong about that. Um, I do think they had a lot of pieces in place, you know, not just not just the starting pitchers, but you know, the Michael Confortos of the world, uh, you know, Brandon Nimmo in the on the team already to add a few things and take a run at it. It just hasn't worked out the way he planned right now, and and it may not this year. Yeah, one of the young pieces that's on this team already, Ahmed Rosario, has drawn a lot of uh, heat lately because his defense has been abysmal. And, I mean, they said during the game, they said he has minus 13 defensive runs today, which is incredible considering he's a gold glove defender, but he's hit a little bit. So how do the Mets view his development this season? Are they happy with him? Are they disappointed with him? What do you think they're feeling about him? In terms of defense, let's get this out there, too. The Mets are not a good defensive team overall, and you would hope that their young shortstop who is very, you know, he's an athletic guy, and you would, you would hope that he would have range that would add, you know, some defensive value there. I mean, it has not played out that way. Um, you know, a couple of tough plays that he couldn't make on Sunday hurt them. Uh, I, I think overall in terms of his development, you know, I think they would like it to be faster. But in this case, you know, it is what it is. He's in his second full season. He's, this is his age 23 season. And I think that, you know, now because the, the uh, prospects are covered in an excellent way now, so much attention on this guy is the best prospect in baseball, this guy is number four, this guy is number eight. I think we all have outsized expectations of guys when they finally do reach the major leagues. And I think he's a victim of that. I think he was probably overrated on the prospect list in terms of being major league ready. And... He was probably rushed to the major leagues um, and was not ready, was not uh, um, polished enough to play. And that's something that the Mets were trying to address last year when they were 
you know, they used to talk about him working out before games, and then they'd give him the night off because he had he had worked hard on a bunch of stuff offensively and defensively before the game, and that was the the day that was a teaching day for him. And then he was not going to start in the game. I think he probably could have done both since he's since he's young and can and can uh, snap back from that sort of thing. But I mean, this is obviously this guy needs work still, and. He hasn't developed, like, development is not a straight line uh, in, in general. Just because some guy is, you know, an incredible player at 22 doesn't mean that every 22-year-old in the majors is going to be an incredible player. I wouldn't give up on this guy. Um, I know he strikes out a little too much. Um, you know, he's been in a slump recently. I think he's hitting uh, under 200 in his last 19 games. But he's shown a little bit more power at the plate this year. He needs to work on his patience and pitch selection. Uh, obviously, those are ongoing uh, tasks for him. Um, he can still be a good player, though. I, I, know he's a, I know he's a focal point of frustration for fans, though, and, and, and I get it. Um, he's got to do better, especially defensively. But I think there's still some stuff there, and I think he can still be a winning player. For them, it just may not take uh, uh, it may not take the quick time that a lot of people want, including the Mets. Yeah, one thing I've noticed with the Mets over the over the years, I feel like there's like a little disconnect between how they evaluate their own players because we heard like Ahmed Rosario was can't miss, Dom Smith was can't miss, and they both came up and struggled. Whereas we heard struggle stuff about how Pete Alonso couldn't play the field and Jeff McNeil couldn't field. They both come up and been fine there. So, do you think there's some sort of disconnect with the Mets where they have trouble evaluating their own guys and that's lead some of the problems? Uh, I don't know the answer to that, to be honest. Uh, you know, I do know that uh, now with a new general manager in, in charge, I'm sure that that is something that he is trying to get to the bottom of um, because you know, those are four, exam- four pretty good examples that you just named w- with those guys. I mean, Jeff McNeil took a leap forward last year in terms of he always, he always could hit but I think he was one of those guys that was like, oh, yeah, you know, he, he would come up to the majors and hit 280, but he has no power, so whatever. And I feel like that was the plan, you know, the thought about him. And he really developed some power last year, and, and that helped him. I think that helped him get his hit tool noticed uh, as well. And, yeah, you're right. I mean, nobody thought he could play defense, and, and he's been fine. And, uh, you know, so I don't know. I mean, if there's a disconnect there, then that's something they've got to polish up and, and, and get right. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I think Dom Smith, when he came up, I don't know if he was ready to come up. And then I think when he got here, I think people were trying to tell him to hit home runs more. And that's not really his game. Um, And I think you're seeing a little bit of the real Dom Smith this year. Um, It's too bad they don't have a spot for him every day so we could see how he could really hit, you know, given the reps. But he's done a nice job this year, I think. Yeah, that's my last question is about Dom Smith. Like, what do you think they end up doing with him? Do they try and get him into left field a couple times a week? Do you think he's trade bait? Like, what do you think they will end up doing with him? It's a great question. Um, the idea of him playing in the outfield is probably pretty good. It's disappointing that the Mets didn't school him in the outfield uh, in spring training and that that has become a topic uh, for the season, you know, where he's sort of, you know, getting, getting in, in on it on the fly. That's not good planning. They should have done better at that um, if that was ever going to be an option. You know, the problem is, you know, both Jeff McNeil and Brandon Nimmo, uh, McNeil, you know, has some outfield uh, duties to perform now, and obviously Nimmo is an outfielder. You know, those guys are on the injured list right now. What happens to Dom Smith's outfield reps when those guys come back? And, you know, you're certainly not starting Dom Smith over uh, the most exciting thing to hit the Mets in years at first base, Pete Alonso. So, you know, is he trade bait? Uh, has, does he play regularly enough 
for you to get the you know the the fair value out of a, a trade partner because they're like well he's a part-time player we don't know what he can really do we're not going to give you this guy or that guy but maybe he does become a trade piece i mean they could certainly use a reliever i mean a, a dynamite reliever for dom smith would anybody give that up and would that be a good trade for the mets maybe well that's a lot of stuff for them to ponder anthony mccarran thanks for all the time today before i let you go do i let everybody know how to follow you on social media and some of the stuff you're up to Oh, uh, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter, at Anthony McCarron, um, and that's, what, that's where I do pretty much 100% of my social media stuff. So uh, follow along, um, watch SNY, read the website, and uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. I enjoyed it. All right, thanks, Anthony. I really appreciate it. Okay, you bet, Mike. All right, that was Anthony McCarron from SNY talking baseball with me, the Mets and the Yankees, obviously this week. The Mets home against the San Francisco Giants. They also host the Colorado Rockies on this homestand. The New York Yankees are on the road this week. They have a trip to Toronto for the first time this year. They get the struggling Blue Jays. You can see Vlad Jr. for the first time. They get the Cleveland Indians in Cleveland. That's going to be a fun week. We will be talking more baseball next week. The baseball beat is coming back on. We're going to have the Subway Series, which actually is next week, believe it or not. The first two, anyway, at Yankee Stadium. We'll catch up on the rest of the league there. But up next, this week's two-minute drill, we are going to talk about the NBA. It's We'll catch up on game one and two of the finals, my take on what's happening there, and this idea of the NBA adding some tournaments to its calendar. Some like potential, a mid-season tournament, a post-season ter- tournament. We'll break it all down right after this. Iguodala 0 for 3 from downtown. Siakam drives hard. Well defended, and he still banks it home. He's got 20. The Raptors have done a great job in transition. And Siakam getting to his right hand takes a little bump. This is good defense, but incredibly hard. All right, we are back on the Just End the Suffering podcast. It's two-minute drill. That call you has heard from Mike Breen and Jeff Van Gundy of ABC. Pascal Siakam had a huge game in Game 1 for the Toronto Raptors, who started the NBA Finals with a win there. Siakam went absolutely bonkers in the first game. He scored. He went off for 32 points and 8 rebounds in the Game 1 victory for the Raptors, and they dominated the tempo in Game 1. They controlled the pace. They just literally defended the Warriors to the point the Warriors were frustrated. They couldn't get anything going they wanted to. So, Game 2. Last night, Warriors made a terrific adjustment. Game one, they started Jordan Bell at the five. Did not work as well. They brought back DeMarcus Cousins, put him in the starting lineup, and DeMarcus Cousins was a force in that game last night. Cousins was a big presence down low, helped the Warriors tremendously in the half-court offense, which is not one of their stronger suits. They like to run in transition a lot more. And the Raptors were trying to make it a half-court game. Cousins came in last night. He was getting rebounds. He was scoring his points. He was facilitating as a passer. Warriors come back from a big halftime deficit, win the game, even the series at a game apiece. Head back to Golden State on Wednesday for game number three. We might see Kevin Durant there. There has been speculation about whether or not Durant will play when he's going to play in the series. The word we've heard is the middle of the series, which is vague at this point. You make you think he's going to play game three on Wednesday or game four on Friday in Golden State. This is the only, those are the only two games of the series, by the way, that have just one day off in between. Otherwise, it's two games in between every game. So we're going to see some Durant coming up. And it'll be fun because this series has been interesting. Unlike last year where we had 
Cleveland and Golden State for the fourth year in a row, and it was basically LeBron and a bunch of dudes trying to take on the Warriors, and they blew that series when J.R. Smith forgot the score in game one and could have stolen game one on the road. But Toronto has a chance. Toronto's a more complete team. Toronto has guys who can help Kawhi Leonard, like Pascal Siakam, like Kyle Lowry and Marcus Saul. I like those guys, and simply put, they are the best fit here. Now, as far as the tournament thing that I talked about before, Adam Silver, NBA commissioner, has gone on record saying that the league is interested in experimenting with some potential postseason tournaments. Actually, there's one midseason and a postseason tournament. Don't get me wrong, the NBA playoffs are great. The, especially the last couple of rounds, you get some great basketball, you get these teams playing war with each other, but does not have, until you get to Game 7, that true one-and-done win-or-go-home moment like the NCAA tournament does, which I love. I always feel like that's one of the best postseason formats around. I think it's funny not the NBA is trying to capitalize on all of this. And let's start with the fact that Adam Silver last week went on WFAN with Mike Francesa in New York Discuss some of these ideas, including the idea of a mid-season tournament, which they compare to the European soccer model, how European soccer will sometimes stop in the middle of the season, play a tournament for a title. The play a tournament, win, the winner gets the trophy, gets the prestige, and they go back to their season. The NBA, obviously, for years, has the All-Star break, where they have All-Star Saturday with the dunk contest, the three-point contest, the skills challenge, all that stuff. And the All-Star game is just coming afterthought. Let's hear what Silver said with Mike Francis about the idea of a mid-season tournament. I mean, we we love our sort of All-Star weekend and all the events around it. And it's a, you know, because we don't have a neutral site championship. So it's a date certain, a location certain where everyone in the NBA community, increasingly global, can make plans and all come together. So we like that aspect of it. But it's, it's no secret. The All-Star game itself has become a bit of an afterthought. Uh, and and then the question is, all right, if if the players aren't into it in the way they once were, the fans aren't into it in the way they once were, maybe, again, let's use that All-Star weekend, the days that we have off before, the days we have off afterwards, and maybe we can create a more interesting competition. Okay. Odd surface is not a bad idea. The All-Star game means absolutely nothing. It literally does because nobody plays defense. The games are like basically 140 to 137. The first three quarters, basically everybody trying to dunk in the most creative way possible. And it's not exciting. It just isn't. Now, the problem is you need to find the right stakes for a midseason tournament because the European soccer model has not landed in the U.S. I mean, compared to Major League Soccer, Major League Soccer does not relegate teams from one league to the other like European soccer does, where if your team stinks, you can down, dump down a level in the pyramid. So, the midseason tournament idea, while fun, if it's just, oh, you win this, we'll call it the Bill Russell Trophy, that's not going to really appeal to anybody because why am I playing for this? Why as a fan should I care that my team won the Bill Russell Trophy? What do I get out of it as a fan? That doesn't really excite me. It's not a bad idea. I like the idea of placing the All-Star game with something else, but what's the vehicle? That's the question. What is the vehicle here that we have in midseason to place the All-Star game? Now, I think maybe you could do something like a three-on-three tournament. As you know, the big three in the summer has got a lot of hype last year. You could have 
an NBA version where each team sends three of its players to play a three-on-three competition. That would be a lot of fun. The NHL All-Star Game changed from a pure East-West format to three-on-three uh, actually a couple of years ago. That was that became a lot of fun. That opened up the ice, created a lot of scoring, created a lot of entertainment. Now, the three-on-three is also a model coming to the Olympics in a few years, so it'll be interesting to see if maybe this is a trial run to figure out which NBA player is the best to go to the three-on-three three Olympics. But the stakes still need to be out. I mean, what are we getting here out of this three-on-three three tur- tournament or um, whatever tournament you want to do in the middle of the season? Are we getting a? Are we getting improvement in draft picks? Are we getting a boost in your playoff chances? Like I don't know what the stakes are. That's something that the NBA would have to iron out for a midseason tournament. The idea of a potential play-in tournament, where the teams are playing for spots in the postseason, that is much, much more interesting to me. Silver and France have discussed that on WFAN last week. Let's hear what, a little bit what they have to say about that. No, absolutely. That that is, you know, the so-called play-in tournament is something we've been talking a lot about at the league. And and you're right; it would have a double benefit. One of dramatically disincentivizing tanking, and guys presumably then would be playing to get into the playoffs. You could have a situation where teams are playing for higher draft picks, um, or a team and, that and, was injured early in the season that made a late run but didn't fall yeah. fell short. That kind of thing. We love that idea. So so yeah, and and, and so and and it would independently create a really interesting competition. They're right. It would create a very, very interesting competition. Think about this for a second. The NBA, you have eight teams make the playoffs in each conference. So that's 16 teams. Let's say for argument's sake, you put the top seven seeds as buys. That you clinch in the top seven, you're automatically in the postseason. That leaves 16 teams, eight per conference. You could have a single elimination tournament with remaining eight teams to get the one playoff spot in your league. So this year, the eighth seed in the East, I think that was, who was the eighth seed in the East? Yeah, I look that up. Give me a second, guys. The eighth seed was the Detroit Pistons. The Pistons would play the Knicks in the first round. Now, all of a sudden, if you're a Knicks fan, you had a stinking regular season, but you know what? Win three games, you're in the playoffs. That's a lot of fun. That's a lot of excitement. That would be a lot of, very interesting. And it would be great for the fact that you wouldn't it's disincentivizing tanking because the players would say, you know what? Yeah, we had a bad year. We struggled. But you know what? We went three games in the playoffs. The owners would be happy because you have a shot to get in the playoffs and get those two home playoff games. Even if you're playing the Bucks or the Warriors and you get and you get wiped out, you still have that incentive to try and compete. And that would be a lot of fun. Another thing is that you could also tie this to the draft in some way. This is one of the NBA's chronic problems is we don't want tanking, so we're, we want it to encourage these teams to compete, whereas the nature of basketball itself, where having the great players gives you the best chance to win, makes it that, you know what, if I don't have a LeBron James, I don't have a Kevin Durant, if I don't have a couple of their superstars with them, why am I trying? Why I just tank? collect my ping pong balls to the lottery and try and get a elite talent like a Zion Williamson out of the draft and hope he's the next LeBron and start building that way. What you could do is tie draft picks to this. So, for example, if you perform better in the tournament, you get a better draft pick, at, whereas it would encourage teams to at least try. 
Like there are points here the Knicks actually benched Ennis Cantor against the Brooklyn Nets because he beat the he could beat the Nets by himself. That's not exactly what you want to be selling to your audience. One idea, this is a radical one, which I've heard from Evan Roberts and WFAN last week, is it's this takes us to the extreme a bit. Whereas Roberts proposes that you basically get rid of conferences in the NBA and you take the sixteen best teams into the playoffs and you still have this tournament at the end for the last spot number 16 the 16 seed if you will the top 15 teams make the playoffs are locked in their matchups the 16 seed is up in the air let's say in the east women detroit is this team with the worst record they would have a bye for the first round of this tournament the other 14 teams play first round matchups so you would have seven games you have seven winners Bring the Pistons back in. You have eight teams left. They play off the tournament for the last playoff spot. What Robert suggested is that whoever wins this tournament not only gets in the playoffs as the eight seed, or as the 16 seed, excuse me, but gets the number one pick in the NBA draft. Imagine that for a second if you're a Knicks fan. You could have been the worst seed in the playoffs you could have won the worst of the tournament. You get hot for four games. You win your way through. And you get not only two playoff games. We probably get crushed by the Warriors. That's a whole other debate. Or the Bucks, I believe, have the best record in the NBA this year. But you still get the number one pick. And you get Zion Williamson. That would be pretty fun. After that, you could still have the draft order determined by record. But it would disincentivize teams to just completely, completely just give up. Because if there was a clear cut top choice like Zion Williamson out there, these teams say, you know what? I got to play this tournament. I have to get Zion. I have to give my all to give myself the best chance to win this tournament so I can get him. As opposed to saying, ah, oh, you know what? I'll tank for the lottery balls. I don't care if I'm the second pick. Teams would try more. And that would be a lot of fun. That would be very exciting. In theory, this there's still some wrinkles that worked out. Obviously, any of these tournaments, you would have to cut the schedule, which is never going to happen. NBA owners and sports owners in general do not want to give up the home revenue. They do not want to give up the gates and give up home games. I have There's never been a league that says, you know what? We'll play less games. Our product is suffering. We're going to play less games. They always want more because they want more chances to sell tickets, more chances to sell the hot dogs and the parking and the T-shirts. They will never take less opportunities to open the doors. This would eliminate the lottery, which the NBA gets huge ratings off of, but the ratings for this tournament would be much, much higher. And imagine the level of hype you could have. You got people filling out brackets like March Madness, a mini version of it. You could have your own little special about how these things are happening. You could have a neutral site every year where everybody goes to play this tournament. It would be a lot of fun. And Silver talked about this in the interview with Brad Sasa. He said the league is looking for ways to sort of expand its footprint a little bit without expanding because they have the right number of teams. Imagine you take this team every, this term every year to neutral site. Like, let's say you go to Seattle one year, go to Las Vegas another year, you go to Louisville, Kentucky one year. It's a good way to build the brand of basketball throughout the country, throughout the world even. It'd be a lot of fun. I always have to say, I think the midseason tournament is still a work in progress and the playing tournament is great, but... I love the fact that Adam Silver is actually trying to make his sport better. He's trying to be innovative. Of all the commissioners right now, 
between him, Roger Goodell, Rob Manfred, and Gary Bettman, who I feel will be commissioner until he dies. He is by far the best one. He legitimately cares about his product. He cares about his players. He cares about making the sport better. I mean, Silver basically added the extra days on the All-Star break to get more rest for the players. He expanded the schedule a little bit, the calendar, to create more rest, eliminate four games in five days, and try and cut down severely on the back-to-backs so that they can get more performance out of their players. The players love him. The owners love him. And Adam Silver is not just a vehicle to lie in the owner's pockets like Roger Goodell is, like Manfred is. We could have a much better sports experience if we have more commissioners like Adam Silver. Hopefully more of these guys are out there somewhere and they're not and they get chances to lead leagues. Sports need more guys like Adam Silver. And he is awesome. All right, and that's going to do it for this week's show. I want to thank my guest, Anthony McCarron, for coming on to talk baseball, specifically the New York Mets and the New York Yankees, and how these teams are looking right now and what we can expect a little bit going forward with some of these guys. If you want more stuff like this podcast, including my look at the Jets GM search and how important it is that they get it right, they make the right choice and don't waste the prime of Sam Darnold's career, check out the blog over at justandthesuffering.wordpress.com. You'll subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, or Stitcher. Go ahead. You can go to any of those mediums, search for Just and the Suffering there. You can go back, find all the old episodes of the podcast, and let me know how you like it. Please leave your feedback and star ratings. That'll help make the show even better going forward. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphilips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. And tweet at me with the hashtag PlayInTournament if you like the idea of the NBA Play-In Tournament. I think it's a lot of fun. I think there's still room to be workshops. I think the league is working on it, but I like this idea a lot. I think it'll be a lot of fun. Next week, we're going to do another U.S. Open golf preview. The golf has been trending very well in this podcast. People want the golf. So Dan DMRT is coming back on the podcast. We're going to break down the golf preview of the U.S. Open out at Pebble Beach, see if Brooks Capo will repeat, see how he does coming off his dominant win at the PGA. The baseball beat will also be back. Will Steinerhan, Anthony Sarbellini. We'll talk Subway Series. We'll talk a little bit about what's going on around the league. Hopefully, at this point next week, Craig Kimbrell and Dallas Keiko will sign. Hopefully, the Mets have Kimbrell, but I doubt it. Keiko might be a Yankee by then. We'll discuss that as well. Until then, I hope you have a better week than Mets fans. <laughs>